Welcome to IAQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Yes, the rules have changed. changed and we are back good day wherever you're listening from and welcome to indoor air quality radio friday september 12th 2008 we're back from summer break with episode 94 from studio b in beautiful coriopolis pennsylvania my name is joe hughes of radio joe and here with me in the studio is the z-man cliff slotney hey good afternoon joe always a pleasure to work with you good day cliff and at the controls is the wingman chris boisel Whoa, Good a little, little close. <laughs> All right, let's see. I don't see our uh, technical director on the line yet, but he'll be here any moment. Today's segments, <clears throat> excuse me, include the microband trivia question. We've got Dr. Martin Chapman of the president of Indoor Biotechnologies with part three of our home health assessment series. We'll have an IE Connections What's News with Glenn Fellman, and then we will bring everybody back together for the roundtable and round things up. We've been updating that iaqradio.com website with a blog after the show, and let's get started by thanking our sponsors. Cliff? Our newest sponsor is Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. You can learn more about them at legends-enviro.com. Microband Systems, the microbial management company at microbandsystems.com Indoor Environment Connections the newspaper for the IAQ industry subscriptions and advertising information available at ieconnections.com Dryease Products providing equipment for drying water damaged homes and buildings Dryease is first in drying solutions at dri-eaz.com John Don Products where restoration and abatement contractors shop at J-O-N don.com please be sure to thank our sponsors for their financial support of iq radio when you inquire about their products and services all right for con- to contact the show you can call 724-444-7444 they will ask for your show rd id it's 1547 and then all you have to do is press one to join the show you can also download the show by going to our website at www.iaqradio.com and follow the link that says go to the show, or you can get the show from iTunes. We appreciate suggestions, and we'll answer questions, take requests, etc. if you email us at joe.hughes at iaqtraining.com or cliffzlotnick at unsmoke.com. We're also getting some uh, requests now for the IICRC continuing education credits, and we have always been getting IAQ Consult renewal credit 
requests, all you have to do is email me again at joe.hughes at iaqtraining.com. I'll send you a quiz, and uh, we can get you those credits. Last but not least, please visit the IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com. Let's turn it over to Cliff for the microband trivia question. Thanks, Joe. Well, congratulations go out to Dan Reed. He successfully answered the trivia question for episode 93, which uh, a fire in which building in Baltimore resulted in a in, in adaption uh, of adoption of standards, and that was the Johnny Hurston Company building. Uh, we have one question that is uh, remaining outstanding. That is the question for episode 92. The microband trivia question for September 12, 2008. We want you to name the substance that promotes the generation of antibodies, can cause immune response, and refers to all substances which can be recognized by the adaptive immune system. Back to you, Joe. All right. Thanks, Cliff. Our first guest today, our only guest today, and other than the news segment, of course, is Martin D. Chapman, Ph.D., He's the president of Indoor Biotechnologies, Inc. Dr. Chapman has uh, received his Ph.D. in immunology in 1981 from the Royal Postgraduate Medical School, University of London. And he also had some postdoctoral fellowships at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine and at the UCLA School of Medicine. He has been a faculty member at the University of Virginia since 1985 and became a tenured professor of medicine in 1997. Dr. Chapman's scientific research focused on the molecular and structural properties of dust mite, cat, dog, cockroach allergens, and fungal allergens, and their role in causing allergic diseases, especially asthma. We are very grateful for Dr. Chapman joining us. Hello, Dr. Chapman, would we have you on the line? We have to get them unmuted. Oh, we have some music. You're mad as hell, allergy sufferer. When your tongue starts to swell, so keep all those carpets clean to keep all your histamine from getting a chance to make you ill. But maybe that scone you tried did have an egg inside allergy I almost forgot the intro music good morning dr chapman how are you uh good morning joe and cliff it's a pleasure to be on your show and to have the opportunity to uh talk with uh, all the iaq folks out there Great to have you. Let's uh, let's start off with a little bit about. I gave a little intro, introductory uh, segment there on your background, but uh, we had talked yesterday a little bit, and I found it interesting what you know brought you from uh, from London over here to the United States. Can you relate that a little bit to our listeners? Yeah, sure. Um, while I was in London, we'd done a lot of work on identifying dust mite allergens. Uh, I had the opportunity to come to the U.S. on a NATO postdoctoral fellowship. And so I initially came to Virginia and then spent some time at UCLA, where I was actually trying to identify allergens produced by kissing bugs. Um, 
then I got the opportunity to come back to, to Virginia to be on the faculty there. And so that's really where we started our research, not only dust mites, but also um, they were doing some emergency room asthma studies at the time. And uh, after dust mite, the second most common cause of patients coming to the emergency room, the second most common cause of allergies was cockroach. And so we started to work on identifying the cockroach allergens and developing tests to measure them in, in house dust samples. And then you left the university and started indoor biotechnologies, is that correct? Well, that was a few years later. That was actually 16 years later, oh. in fact. Um, uh, we had done a lot of work on developing tests to measure allergens in the 1980s and 1990s. Um, in the middle of the 1990s, we be began to see the commercial potential of those sorts of tests. Um, they'd been used in a lot of studies by NIH, for example, the inner city asthma studies, to look at what were the factors responsible for the increased asthma mortality and morbidity in U.S. inner cities. Um, and they've been used by academic researchers and companies um, across the states and, and elsewhere in the world. Um, and so we saw a commercial opportunity to start to really uh, develop a business around those assays. And uh, in 2001, um, I had my NIH grants were, we, we ran those down, uh, moved um, uh, several people from my lab into the company. And since 2001, I've been sort of fully employed in uh, in uh, in the company uh, we continue to do have a lot of uh, active research projects going on in the company um, but of course our, our focus is on commercial activities and um, developing products that uh, um, IAQ um, um, uh, people can use um, um, to assess allergen exposure in the home we, we will uh, go into a little more detail on that in a moment, but before we do, let's get a little background for listeners. Um, what makes an allergen an allergen? Well, that's the question it was first asked, I think, in the 1970s by uh, someone in Norway, um, an allergist called Kjell Ors, and it's been, people have been trying to answer it really ever since. We still don't have the complete answer. Now, most allergens are soluble proteins that are um, produced or excreted by the source. So, uh, um, and this could be from dust mites or cat or cockroach or even pollens. And the feature is that these, these proteins are readily soluble. Um, so when a pollen grain lands on your nose, the pollen allergens actually come out of that grain within one or two minutes, and that's what enables them to then pass through the, the mucosal surfaces and uh, um, cause these allerg immediate allergic reactions. Now, in dust mites, for example, the allergens are packaged in the mite fecal particles. Um, and what's interesting is that over the past um, five or ten years, we've learned that there are a lot of um, pro additional uh, um, um, properties and things that are in the fecal particle um, that can cause, that can exacerbate um, um, allergic reactions. Um, these are things like endotoxin, um, chitin, which is a very recent one. The allergens themselves, um, the main allergen, one of the main allergens from dust mite is actually a, uh, an enzyme, and that help, helps it to actually um, um, uh, enter through the lung epithelium. It can actually digest some of the epithelial membranes, and actually that allows the allergens to get into the access to the immune system a lot more quickly. So there are a number of others, what we call, you know, enhancing factors or adjuvant factors that can affect the, the basic um, the, the protein as well. 
And of course, the other big issue about what makes an allergen an allergen is the genetics. And uh, we've known now for um, getting on for nearly 100 years that, um, um, you know, if a, if, a, if a mother or a father has allergy or asthma, then there's about a 30 to 50 percent chance that their offspring will too. And so that allergy is, um, um, a lot of allergy is inherited from, from the parents. Doctor, how were household allergens first discovered? Um, well, basically by people looking in house dust. Um, it was um, known in the 1920s and 30s that house dust was caused allergic reactions, that it was often associated with asthma. And in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, people were trying to look for what was the ingredient, what was the component in house dust that caused this, this reaction. Now, you can imagine that that was a significant challenge because people's house dust, uh, you know, in Pennsylvania may differ from what it is in Virginia or Detroit or somewhere else. So they're trying to identify what was a common common thing in house dust that could cause this problem. And for a number of years, people thought it was a chemical reaction that might occur in the house dust that could generate this allergenic material. And then in the early 1960s, uh, 1964, a group of um, researchers, Voorhorst and Spieksma, uh, in, um, in Leiden, in the Netherlands, actually looked in house dust under the microscope, and uh, they found that their, their Dutch dust samples were teeming with house dust mites. And when they, when they did some further research, they showed that the, the, the allergenic strength of these house dust extracts was dependent on how many house dust mites they contained. And so they actually um, did the first experiment, which showed that house dust mites were really the major cause of house dust allergen. What, um, how, I'm sorry, what are some of the more common allergens that are found in homes today? Well, they're mainly um, house dust mites worldwide are probably the most important um, source of, of house dust allergens. Um, in Western countries, um, you um, cat allergen and dog allergen. These are proteins that are produced in, with dog in the salivary glands, um, in cat in the salivary glands, and also in the sebaceous glands. Um, now, you can add to animal allergens in certain inner city environments um, where you're talking about substandardized, poor housing, poor quality housing. You can add mouse to that list. Um, there's been an elegant series of studies done at the Johns Hopkins University that's shown that mouse is an important cause of inner city asthma. Rat also can be a problem. And of course, these allergens are also uh, important in uh, occupational health. So, for example, um, in uh, animal laboratory animal handlers, it's been known for many years that they can have um, serious allergic reactions to rat and mouse allergens um, to such an extent that if someone who is highly allergic goes into an animal room, they can um, have a severe attack within within literally within minutes. Now. Um, the other allergens that we've worked on a little bit are cockroach, um, and I mentioned the emergency room studies that we did earlier. Um, it's been researched really over the past um, 30 years um, has indicated that, again, in substandard housing with high levels of cockroach infestation, people become, um, can become um, highly allergic to proteins um, produced by cockroaches. And, uh, We've been involved in identifying those proteins and developing tests that will actually measure them. And then the final group of allergens really are molds. Um, 
Mold, though, um, you know, um, in al among allergic asthmatics, you might get 60 or 70% of the patients that are dust mite allergic or cat allergic, and around 15 to 20% that would be mold allergic. And what would be the most common molds? Uh, Alternaria uh, is one, and though that's predominantly an outdoor mold. But um, aspergillus uh, can also be important, and uh, penicillin and another uh, mold called cladosporium, um, which, which can be found indoors. And, and those obviously are generally found in more damp housing. So that really is um, the spectrum um, um, uh, you know, that we, we most commonly study in terms of what's important indoors. Can environmental factors be manipulated to reduce allergies? Um, yeah, um, the, 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 one of the main um, things that you want to do is to try to reduce humidity and increase ventilation. So if you can reduce the humidity in a home to below 50%, um, that's a level at which um, dust mites don't actually grow. Um, they tend to favor relative humidities around 70 to 75%. And so reducing the humidity is very important, and that's also important, for example, in cockroach infestation as a control measure, too, is that you need to, you know, the cockroaches need a water source, and if you can, you know, turn off and, and, and uh, you know, repair leaky faucets, that kind of thing, and that's, that's very helpful. Increasing ventilation is very important. Um, you know, um, in animal rooms in Vivaria, there's actually um, a regulation for animal care that the air exchange rate has to be about 10 air exchanges per hour. Now, in energy-efficient homes that have been essentially kind of sealed, the most humans uh, get about 0.5 air exchanges per hour. And if you can open the windows and increase the ventilation, for example, you can dramatically reduce the levels of cat and dog allergen in a home because these allergens um, tend to be lower density than dust mite feces or cockroach particles, and they stay in the airborne longer. So um, particles produced by cats and dogs can stay in the air for several hours, and if you have good ventilation, you can reduce the levels of those allergens. How, let's uh, move on to a little bit about how allergy sampling is performed. Can you tell us the most common methods today, and then we'll talk about results, etc. Yeah, sure. Um, you know, um, people started sampling allergens <clears throat> in the mid-1980s. Then um, the way this is done typically is you collect a dust sample with a vacuum cleaner, um, and you measure what's called the allergen level in the reservoir dust. So you might take the dust sample from the bed because it's a prime source of mite infestation, or the bedroom or the living room carpet or a sofa. Um, and typically you sample, um, um, you can use a sampling device where um, you, you collect a sample over a period of two minutes. Now, um, our company, um, we um, introduced a sampling device called the MITES dust collector about five or ten years ago. Um, this has a, 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 is a plastic tube with a filter inside it, a nylon filter that fits onto the end of a vacuum cleaner. Um, and you sample an area about the size of a legal pad sheet of paper four times um, um, over a period of um, you know, 30 seconds a time, two minutes total. And that generally gives you between 100 milligrams and one gram of, of dust um, that you can use for the analysis. 
Now, more recently, um, we've modified that collector. We've made it so that it fits the vast majority of current vacuum cleaner models that are on the market. And that collector now is called the dust stream collector. Um, and it's being used in, in studies by HUD and CDC and, and ourselves and, and other companies. Um, the advantage of the collector is that the filters um, are completely disposable um, and the collector device fits, fits most of the vacuum cleaners that are out there. So that's a simple, um, uh, easy-to-use sampling device. Um, for dust sampling, and, and most of the sort of um, data on epidemiology is based on allergen levels in the dust expressed as sort of micrograms per gram of dust. Now, for, for other allergens, um, you know, for dust mite and cockroach and molds, you need to take a dust sample. Perhaps for some other allergens, you can also do air sampling, particularly cat and dog and the animal allergens. Um, and that really would be um, running, a, say, an IOM filter for at a two to four liters a minute for um, an hour or so to actually collect the sample. But still, in in most in, in a lot of the studies, you still see reports of cat and dog exposure uh, in the dust in terms of micrograms per gram of dust. Now, once these samples are taken, they're sent to a, a laboratory like yours or like the people that you work with. And how are they analyzed at that point? Well, what the labs do then is um, you take the dust sample um, and, um, you know, add a couple of mLs of buffer to it. Um, it's mixed usually for a couple of hours on a rocking device. And then you centrifuge out the debris, and that gives you uh, an extract that you can use for immunological uh, assay testing. Now, the standard or the, the gold standard procedure that's been in use for the past um, 20 years has been the so-called uh, ELISA test, which is enzyme-linked immunoassay. And um, our antibodies have been used in most of those tests that are run worldwide. So we have specific antibodies to, to the most important allergens uh, in the sample, for example, DERP-1 or DERP-2 for dust mite, FELD-1 for CAT. And we can make, um, you know, absolutely quantitative measurements to say exactly how much of that protein is in the sample. Now, the ELISA test usually takes about three to four hours to run um, and, um, you know, has been a great standard for uh, uh, tests for use in, in that kind of exposure assessment. Um, you know, it certainly beats counting mites or counting cockroaches, which is what people used to do before that. Um, more recently, and this is the exciting um, um, piece of news, is that we've now um, developed some new technology, which is called the uh, Multiplex Array for Indoor Allergens, or MARIA, which is really going to be the next generation of ELISA tests. And that um, means that instead of actually uh, measuring each allergen separately, which is what you have to do in ELISA, um, we can measure um, eight allergens or nine allergens um, at once um, simultaneously in a single test. Um, and this new technology is very sensitive, very reproducible, um, and uh, is going to greatly increase the scope of um, um, IAQ studies. Um, and it's actually going to make it available to um, a lot of IAQ investigators too, um, um, so that they can send their samples now have them analyzed by Maria and get 
results potentially on eight, ten, or, or more allergens as the as we add assays to the system. You know, where was this indoor? It's really a two-part question. Where was the indoor biotechnology process invented? And I understand it works like a pregnancy test. Can you kind of go into that? Yeah, this is another test that we have developed. Um, um, it basically, um, first of all, in terms of the process, um, all of our tests um, are um, based on using antibodies that are raised against the particular allergen. This is whether it's an ELISA test or Maria test or, um, as you've mentioned, the rapid test. Now, the rapid test is, a, uh, is designed really for use by, um, uh, as a field test by IAQ investigators or even as a test that can be used directly by consumers themselves. And what it is, it works um, exactly on the same principle as a pregnancy test. Um, you have a capture line of antibody, you put your dust sample in a well, it diffuses along, it picks up another antibody, and then those two antibodies meet, and, and the ant one antibody is gold-labeled, and then it gives you a red line on the test. And our test is set up such that we have a uh, red uh, lines pre-printed on the on the cassette which indicate high medium or low exposure levels so that by making the comparison between the test line and the indicator lines you can sort of judge whether this is um, an exposure that's meaningful or one that is perhaps you know doesn't really need to be taken care of um, but as I said before, it's the antibodies and the specificity and quality of the antibodies that's important. And uh, these were originally produced um, uh, when I was at the University of Virginia Asthma Center. Um, since we set up the company, we've made a panel of our own antibodies as well within the company. And these antibodies have now been published in probably well over 300 scientific publications. And in fact, um, most of the um, indoor air quality companies within in the U.S. that offer allergen testing um, use our antibodies um, in their ELISA kits or uh, in future, uh, we hope, in, in Maria kits. Excellent. Let's, uh, for one moment, I'd like to go, I see our technical directors on the line. I'd like to say hello, and while you're mentioning ELISA, we discussed, there he is. Yes, he is. Uh, <laughs> Hello, Dieter. He was another phone call before you guys started. Uh, okay, good, I, good to have you, The majority uh, of the discussions I listened to. Okay, I, we mentioned Eliza, and this morning I talked to you a little bit about Eliza, and you had told me that you were using that for, it wasn't for allergens, though, correct? It was for something else back in the well, 70s? Well, yes. Um we used it yeah, to identify antibodies. At the time, we were working at the University of Pittsburgh Graduate School of Public Health on specific antibodies, and that had something to do with my previous um, employment with the Bayer Chemical Corporation. Uh, we were looking for sensitization and antibodies to uh, TDI, basically, and later on MDI. Uh, these isocyanates, which are the precursors of polyurethane chemistry. And it is, um, it, it is one of the most difficult things that I've ever encountered in my life. And uh, it, it is just unbelievable how much time it takes to identify those things. It's, it, it, it's incredible. Uh, I... And uh, I, well, may, maybe later on I have a question. 
Good. I, I'm sure I'm surrounded in my house by a million allergens. <laughs> <laughs> in Italy, I don't have a reaction to any one of them. And to me, it is so, since there are so many of them around and so many people who may react to so many other things because of their physiological makeup, um, I, I, yeah, it, it is an incredibly difficult thing to identify a factor that produces the disease or the reaction. That, that to me, is un unbelievable until today. Well, thank you, Dieter. We will bring you back for the roundup, and mm -hmm. I wanted to see if Dr. Chapman had any comments on the difficulty of doing the ELISA uh, process. Certainly. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, obviously, you know, when the technology was developed 30 years ago, it was a new technology, and, and certainly trying to me measure uh, things like PDI was particularly different, difficult for scientific reasons that we, we needn't go into here. But I must say that, you know, um, ELISA technology is used in public health labs now worldwide, and uh, we have actually trained over the past 10 years um, most of the labs in the States that do this for allergens. Um, we're simple folks. We like to do the things that are just going to be straightforward and pragmatic and easy to do, and we wouldn't be losing ELISA if it were in in incredibly complex. Um, with the right antibodies, the right protocols, um, it's a straightforward procedure that a um, someone with a, um, a bachelor's degree can uh, readily perform, um, and perhaps even someone with a <clears throat> you know a high school diploma if they're if they're well trained and have an eye to detail. So I think it is a simple, uh, relatively straightforward technique. And in our training course that we actually have just finished this week, we offer training. We pr we provide equipment lists as to how to set up a, an ELISA lab. Um, that people have found to be very helpful. Well, let's go into a little bit more of the, on that after the break here. Right. We've got uh, some breaking news, and uh, we're going to bring you back in about five minutes. Sounds good. Okay. Right, we have our leader of men and women on the line, Glenn Feldman. Here I am. <laughs> Hello, oh, Glenn. Hey, Glenn. Good to have you. What's news? Uh, We've been gone for three weeks. Something big must have happened. Oh uh, well, you know it's the summertime. Nothing happened. Everyone went to the beach. They got their kids <laughs> off to school. Not, not really much. No, I've got a couple stories I'm going to uh, give to you today. Actually, two stories, and both of them are um, relating to to legal matters, and both of them are right out of the. the headlines from the from the industry this this month um, actually the first one was a story that came out on august 26 the headline for this one is jury divided in defamation case against mold activist sharon kramer uh, who you folks had on your show how many i don't know how many months ago it was not too many well uh a san diego superior court jury found on august 26 that sharon kramer had defamed Veritalk scientist Dr. Bruce Kelman in the 2005 press release, but that Veritalk itself wasn't wronged by her statement. 
Kelman and Veritox, Veritox, by the way, is formerly known as Global Tox, they filed a defamation suit against Sharon Kramer for comments she made in a press release. The title of her press release was Jury Finds Toxic Mold Harmed Oregon Family, Builders Arbitration Clause Not Binding. Uh, anyway, Kelman and Veritox were seeking a monetary sum of $1 each. So this really wasn't about, uh, this was about their reputations. And throughout the trial, uh, an attorney by the name of Keith Schuer uh, argued that, that the lawsuit was strictly to vindicate Kelman's reputation and to get uh, a finding that he didn't lie under oath. The heart of the week-long trial was a phrase from Kelman's three-page press release that simply said, Dr. Kelman altered his, uh, altered his under oath statements on the witness stand. Uh, Kramer published the press release after speaking to several sources, including the victim and the victim's attorney. And according to uh, her attorney, Brandon Landlow, uh, she had four sources. She did a considerable amount of investigation, and she believed her story was correct. He goes on to say that um, after speaking with the jurors after the trial, this attorney believes that the panel had misunderstood the meaning of actual malice, and that, that led them to focus entirely on the belief that Kramer supposedly had some sort of animosity and that their, uh, their, their decision, therefore, was flawed. And uh, Landlow said that Kramer will most likely file an appeal. So I don't think we've heard the last of this um, at all. She's a fighter, and, and I think she'll come back on this one. Well, let's we'll, we will keep listeners up to date and appreciate you helping us keep them up to date. You got another one? I do, I do. This one just came out this week. A uh, The headline on this one is Disaster Restoration Owner Employees Are Indicted. Uh, a federal grand jury in Denver indicted the owner of a company called Disaster Restoration, Inc. on Monday, charging him and nine current and former employees of the company with conspiracy and mail fraud. A gentleman named Michael Arthur Griggs and the other defendants uh, will receive a summons to appear in U.S. District Court in Denver, according to the U.S. Attorney's Office on Tuesday. The company repairs, restores, and reconstructs commercial and residential properties that have been damaged by fire, flood, uh, and other disasters, and it acts as a general contractor, hiring subcontractors and submitting the invoices for their work to insurance companies, according to the U.S. Attorney. The indictment alleges that from the fall of 2003 until early 2007, the defendants conspired to commit mail fraud. A meeting would be held, allegedly, every Tuesday, during which the defendants would discuss how to tell, or, or excuse me, how to tell many of their subcontractors to inflate their bid proposals by 20% to 30%, according to the indictment. The subcontractors were told to submit two bid documents, one inflated and one not inflated, for the same work, according to the indictment. And then disaster restoration would pay the subcontractors based on the non-inflated bid, but bill the insurance companies on the inflated bid. Uh, again, this is according to the U.S. Attorney's indictment. And they said that the company would pocket the difference between the two bid amounts. The payments were sent through the U.S. Postal Service, forming the basis of the mail fraud charge. Uh, prosecutors are asking the court to seize uh, the building that uh, DR, uh, Disaster Restoration Inc. Uh, occupies, and uh, they've also sought to uh, seize uh, Griggs, Michael Griggs's bank account and his home. It's a 60-count indictment against these 10 defendants. Um, Griggs was charged with one count of conspiracy and 57 counts of mail fraud. Uh, all except for one of the other defendants were likewise charged with conspiracy and mail fraud. A fellow named uh, Charles uh, Sharp, 
who was the COO and general manager, has also been charged with two counts of commercial extortion based on his demand that subcontractors further lower their invoices if they wanted to get paid. The conspiracy charge carries a sentence of up to five years and a fine of as much as $250,000. The mail fraud charges carry a possible 20-year sentence and a fine as much as $250,000. And then the additional charges against Sharp carry a possible 20-year sentence. Wow. Uh, the case was investigated by the U.S. Postal Inspection Service and the National Insurance Crime Bureau, and the prosec- prosecuting it are uh, Assistant U.S. Attorneys uh, Pegan Rye and Bob uh, Midens. This is a, a story that has already made a lot of waves within the um, disaster restoration industry. I've been reading uh, tons of things on chat, chat boards and things like that. The uh, firm is well known within the disaster restoration industry. The uh, uh, company owner is a former uh, leader of one of the industry organizations. The firm is an IICRC certified firm and a member of the Restoration Industry Association. In fact, the Restoration Industry Association put out a statement regarding the U.S. Attorney's indictment, and it concluded by saying, uh, we are saddened when any restoration contractor is accused of breaching the RIA ethical code or public law, and our concerns are with those who are affected by this case. My guess is that the uh, associations in the industry will wait to see what comes out of the uh, investigation and any subsequent uh, court proceedings. And if these uh, gentlemen are found guilty, I'm sure they'll take the responsible action. In the meantime, it's a story that I think we're going to be hearing a lot about. And uh, the small independent contractors you know, in the industry, I think, are going to be taking a good look at um, you know, their practices to make sure that uh, they don't get caught up in something like this, too. Interesting okay. stuff. Well, thank you, Glenn. Thanks, Glenn. We appreciate it. I think we've got something on going out for Glenn. Hear ye! Hear ye! The Colt's in session. The Colt's in session. Now, nah, here comes the judge. Here comes the judge. Here comes the judge! Here comes the judge! Here comes the judge now! Well, looks like somebody's going to be talking to the judge here. Hopefully everything will work out, and uh, we shall see. We'll be reporting down the road on IAQ Radio right. on how things turn out. Right, and they're innocent until proven guilty. That's and right. uh, I guess we have some intro music. Maybe you're itching, so you start to bitching, because it ain't fun. Give me a jingle if you start to tingle when you've been stung, allergy sufferer. I heard you got allergy sufferer and a phylactic shock when you were driving home. You popped a few bread in the zone, then took a turn for the We were, but we were, we are back now. Our uh, <laughs> microphones were down there. All right, Dr. Chapman, do we have you back on, uh, still on the line with us? Absolutely. All right, great. Thanks for your patience on that break. That's some industry information that people have been uh, interested in hearing about. Let's uh, move on with, uh, we want to talk a little bit more about what IEP or Indoor Environmental Professional related type questions here. And uh, one of them is, you know, what type of sampling products uh, does your firm make available? I know we talked about, let's see, we've talked about uh, the dust stream a little bit. 
Um, and did we touch on the rapid test as well? We touched on it a little bit. Um, we um, make available the the, um, the dust stream and the rapid test um, as part of a kit, um, which contains two tests, um, so you can collect uh, collect and analyze two samples on site. We also have what we call an IAQ pack, which is a, um, a sort of field testing pack of um, 25 um, rapid tests. Um, and a dust sampler and the appropriate number of filters. Um, and that is really designed for IAQ folks uh, who um, are on site and want to do a quick test to see whether there's a problem, a sort of screening test. Um, now, um, in addition to those products, um, we, we, um, we have the uh, ELISA kits for about, um, well, over a dozen um, allergens, um, including pollen allergens and mold allergens. Um, and um, we also um, now have Maria kits, um, which can be um, can measure either eight allergens at once or a more focused group, which can can sell. It's a five plex; it can measure five allergens at once. Uh, in addition to those, um, our lab um, uh, we have a what we call our indoor allergen analysis service. Um, which um, we offer our own um, in-house lab services for measuring allergens, uh, for measuring endotoxin, for measuring uh, the mold allergens and pollen allergens as well that we measure. So that's the kind of service that we, um, um, we offer. Um, and we've been involved in, in doing studies for um, you know, major academic universities uh, such as Harvard, Yale, University of Wisconsin, the studies done by HUD, by CDC, um, by other, you know, NIH branches. Um, so, um, you know, when we've been doing that actually uh, in the company, really since the company, were, you know, the lab was set up actually here in, in 1998, so 10 years uh, we've been doing that. Now, I was reading about, and I believe it was um, a quick check for dust mites. Was that a consumer type test or is that part of the rapid test? That's the rapid test. That is um, the rapid the, test. The rapid test, the rapid test uh, you can collect the dust sample, you can run the rapid test, and the whole thing will take 10 to 15 minutes. Okay. Um, so that's, that's the screening test, um, um, you know, for, for dust mite that we have available. That's for dust mite specifically. Okay, Cliff? Uh -huh. Well, uh, Joe and I are both indoor environmental professionals, and we get called to go into houses and mold problems and allergy problems and so on and so forth. How would we make best use of, of your products? Well, there are two ways in which you can do this. Number one is um, if you wanted to set up your own lab, uh, testing lab to do this, we can help you do that. Um, we can provide training to do it. We can provide advice on equipment, and we can provide the ELISA kits, which is what all of the other um, IAQ labs are using. Um, alternatively, you can send the sample. If you, do, if you don't want to make the investment, you don't want to set up a lab, you can just use our dust stream samplers, collect samples from um, uh, houses or offices or commercial buildings, um, and public places, schools, um, and send those to us for the analysis, the type of analysis service that you want to, to do. And this has actually <clears throat> become a lot easier now with the new multiplex technology because we are basically um, 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 can, you, you can send us um, dust samples and we can run those for eight allergens 
it's like a complete allergen analysis of your home and um, we can usually turn those results around in about four or five days or even sooner. Um, so that really, you know, instead of having to decide and check, well, do I want cat measure? Do I want dust mite? Do I want dog? You might as well send it to us for the Maria service where we measure all eight allergens and, um, you, you know, the, you have the complete information that you can then pass on to the, to the homeowner or to, to who, to your, to the IAQ client. You know, what's involved in, you know, we're, Joe and I are entrepreneurs. What's involved if we wanted to set up a lab? How would we do it? What would it cost? Um, well, you need about, for a small, simple allergen analysis lab, you need between 500 and 1,000 square feet of space. Um, you need, you know, pretty standard um, lab equipment. Um, you, if you were going to set it up to do ELISA, you would need an ELISA reader and a plate washer. That would probably run together around uh, $15,000, um, which I know is a lot for, for many, you know, IAQ consultants. Um, that it would be a sort of startup cost. You'd have to buy pipettes and lab lab plasticware and so on. Um, a centrifuge to spin the samples down. So you're probably looking by the time you bought all the equipment around maybe thirty thousand, possibly a bit more, depending on what type of um, you know quality of equipment you get. Now you know. On the other hand, if you're successful in in um, and if you have a client base where you're regularly getting in samples for analysis, you could easily get your return on that investment um, probably within six months to a year. Mm-hmm. Now, if you wanted to set it up using the multiplex technology, that um, then becomes more expensive, because mainly because of the instrumentation. And that is because to, to, you'd have to use a, um, 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 a multiplex um, reader produced by um, a company called Luminex, which is based in Austin in Texas, or, or by Biorad. It's basically the same instrument. And those instruments cost around $60,000. But they do give you a much enhanced capability in terms of what you can actually perform. And I, we envisage that most companies, that were, most people who are going to want to make that investment would be the larger indoor air quality companies, um, and, um, you know, we provide the kits for them to actually make the measurements and, and again, training on how to do it. And uh, the benefits of Maria uh, technology, multiplex technology, uh, are potentially huge, um, but it's a little bit more sophisticated, requires a little bit more training in order to do that. Now, what we are offering um, to indoor air quality consultants and companies is that we're offering a package where they can become a Maria service partner with us. Um, and under that scenario, um, the service partners, which would be an indoor air quality company, can have an arrangement with us, an agreement where they will send us samples um, at a discounted rate, and we will do the Maria services at a discounted rate um, if they're involved with us as Maria service partners. And there's a sort of a short um, legal agreement, which we're still finalizing, which would actually go with that. Um, but that, you know, enables um, um, indoor air quality companies to to, you know, um, get a foot in the door to develop a market without necessarily making a high-end investment um, in the technology until they're ready to do so. Can, can you give us a ballpark idea on what the costs are for, you know, 
to first of all for the sampling equipment i guess like the the dust stream and then um what the ballpark idea on the cost on analysis of some of these types of uh samples are yeah sure um we currently i think on our website we have the dust stream um is around uh, twelve dollars and that gets you the sampler plus four filters um and um, that enables you to collect four dust samples. So, in effect, it's around $3 per sample. Now, you can buy packs of the filter inserts. Um, and I think for Duststream, we're talking about $180 for 100 filter inserts. Um, and, of course, that would take it down to effectively less than $2 per sample. So the sampling costs are really relatively minimal. Um, the analytical costs... Um, um, typically, uh, by ELISA, these can be um, forty dollars per sam per allergen and up, um, depending on which company is doing the service. With Maria, um, our um, web price for the Maria eight plex for eight allergens is actually one hundred and sixty dollars. So that is actually a you know almost half what you would. Um, it's it's around you know twenty dollars per test. Um, which is half or, or less than half of what you'd actually pay for, for ELISA. Um, and we, as I said before, um, you know, for, for companies that elect to be involved as Maria service partners, that, that is going to be further discounted um, um, to, the, to the customers, um, a little bit dependent on volume. So that gives you a rough idea of the pricing um, um, involved. I, you know, like to play around with chemicals and chemistry and have actually developed an anti-allergen product that, um, and what I'm wondering is how I could use the sampling to evaluate, you know, allergy relief products. Uh, would there be any mm -hmm. adaptivity yeah. there? Oh, absolutely. I mean, we routinely, um, as part of our contract research services that we do in our company, we test a lot of chemicals for their effects on allergens. Um, and basically, we, we treat um, allergen extracts or purified allergens in the lab with the chemical under controlled conditions. And then we run it in our ELISA assays to see what, 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 if any, effect it has had. So that's one line of testing that you can do. Um, the other is um, we, for example, um, have a testing protocol for testing um, mattress encasings. Um, you know, it's recommended by allergists and others that mitallergic patients uh, cover their mattresses with uh, an encasing. And uh, those are now made with a very fine, microfine cotton fabric um, that is between two to six microns in diameter. So the mice can't actually penetrate the fabric. And we have ways of testing um, those, those fabrics to, to be sure that when a, a manufacturer or a supplier makes those uh, encasings, that they really will prevent mite allergens or cat allergens from going through. And uh, we've worked with one particular uh, company called Mission Allergy um, that actually we've tested their fabrics, tested their products, and uh, uh, this is run by an allergist in uh, Connecticut, uh, Jeff, Dr. Jeff Miller, uh, and um, he, their company is really based on selling products that are scientifically or medically validated, and uh, we've been doing the validation for him. And then just one more point. Um, it's important that when you develop chemicals that might affect allergen levels uh, in, in the home, 
that at some point you actually do do testing on homes themselves. It's it's not a, not sufficient just to do tests in the lab. You need to go out into the into homes uh, and treat carpets or treat bedding or treat fabrics, whatever the procedure is, and then sample before, sample afterwards, and show that you can effectively uh, reduce allergen levels. Very good. We're going to. Uh go to the roundup in just a minute, but before we do, I think Cliff has a little uh, segment here for remembrance of uh, 9-11. Thanks, Joe. Thanks, Chris. Uh, these are comments made by Congressman John P. Murtha, Democratic Senator from Pennsylvania. He made these comments uh, yesterday uh, in Congress. In our darkest hour, Americans everywhere joined together in acts of bravery, compassion, and hope. Our first responders work round the clock to help those in need, and millions of us gave of our time and resources to relief organizations like the American Red Cross. In the months following September 11th, we found comfort and pride in each other. We were all Americans, and we were determined to move our great nation forward. Our number one duty is to ensure the safety and security of American people. Our brave men and women in uniform are fighting around the globe so that our children can grow up in a world absent of war and terrorism. We pay tribute to their bravery and to their sacrifice on this anniversary of September 11th, 2001. Thanks, Cliff. Let's go on to the roundup, Chris. Okay, let's bring our good friend, the technical technical director, Dr. Dietrich Wow, back in. Dieter, any questions or comments? Well, I think I said that once or twice before. I always learn something every time I listen to it. And um, I remember how much we struggled, and this is 25 years ago, with the ELISA tests and, and, and identifying antibodies. And I'm, I'm, I'm glad to see... And here that apparently with, you know, better technology and all of that, that has gotten easier and more precise. That is absolutely wonderful. I hope that uh, the results are uh, in, 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 in such a way that we can actually identify, that is, that is you know, the number one problem, that we can identify allergens to which people are reacting. Like, you know, I violently react to uh, poison ivy and nothing else in this world. And um, there may be a lot of people who are reacting to something. And I hope we can fingerprint it. I think we can, I hope we can identify what these people are really uh, allergic to, uh, for which they have you know, circulating antibodies and all of that. So I'm glad to hear that this is... Um, this is going into a direction which um, uh, promises to give us uh, better results. Very good. Well, thank you, Dieter. Any? Um... And I have no, I have no comments on the politics 
and the circus um, uh, we are having with the election. I hope it's going to be over tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> well, just just vote, Dieter. Just vote. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, Doctor, I've got a question for you. Uh, my kids want uh, a house pet, and from an allergen, anti-allergen perspective, what kind of pet would you recommend? Well, you're probably going to be surprised by the answer, but the answer, uh, paradoxically, is probably cats and dogs. Um, there's a lot of uh, in, um, discussion now uh, in the allergy field, and recent research has shown that uh, if you are actually exposed to high levels of cat and dog allergen in infancy, in the immediate postnatal period, that that can lead to up to a 50% um, reduction in the number of people that become allergic to those animals. And it's through a phenomenon that's called immunological tolerance. That I being, love it. By being exposed to a very high level of the allergen, you become tolerant to it. But uh, So that's an ongoing uh, hot topic in the allergy and immunology area. Now, my other, my other tip is... Um, uh, we have at home chinchillas, and uh, chinchillas, there are very few reported cases of allergy to chinchilla, and the reason for this is probably that uh, the chinchilla doesn't produce any urine, or hardly any urine, and the major allergens in rats and mice and gerbils and guinea pigs and so on are, are allergens that are produced in the urine, and uh, the reason chinchillas don't produce very much urine is because they have very good... Uh, um, homeostatic mechanisms for for controlling against uh, for keeping the water inside uh, because they live in very arid environments originally in Chile, and the other recommendation might be well you have to go to reptiles you know maybe an iguana maybe lizards or you know I know fish maybe aren't very cuddly aren't very friendly but <laughs> they can be they can be beautiful too. That's yeah. right. That's yeah. right. Well, I've got another question myself here. Back early in the program. You mentioned that over the last five to ten years, we have found that um, dust mite feces contains endotoxins and uh, chitin and other things that maybe we didn't know were in there before. Uh, I'm curious, and I've also been seeing information that dust mites, you know, it used to be thought they just pretty much um, used skin cells as a food source. Are these other things because they use other food sources as well? No. Um, well, it depends. Um, um, the one mite species, which is called Dermatophagoides terranissimus, uh, the translation of that is skin-eating feather mite. Uh, and they eat skin scales. Um, the other species is Dermatophagoides farinae, and they can actually proliferate and grow quite well in flower, um, because farinae means from flower. So they don't have to necessarily have skin scales, but generally um, skin scales are important, uh, an important source of uh, uh, um, nutrients for mites. And the, you need to bear that in mind a lot, especially if your child has um, eczema or atopic dermatitis, because uh, these kids shed an awful lot of skin scales. And um, um, more than, you know, the average human sheds five grams a week, they probably shed more. And certainly in those situations, you need to be very careful on dust mite control, probably wash the bedding um, every day or every other day uh, to reduce the, the numbers of skin scales and, and potentially mites that can, 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 can be involved there. But um, you know, generally, um, uh, you know, mites can probably also survive on, on other debris and detritus in house dust as well. Um, 
Um, the endotoxin is derived from bacteria. Uh, the chitin is derived, is found is the membrane that covers the fecal particle. Um, so, you know, that's how this, um, uh, um, you know, how, how it all uh, gets into the feces. I see. Before we ask you one last question, we forgot to thank our sponsors at halftime. I want to do it again right now real quick. Cliff? Our newest sponsor is Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Learn more about them at legends-enviro.com. Microband Systems, the microbial management company at microbandsystems.com. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. Dry Ease Products, providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings. Dry Ease is first in drying solutions at dri-eaz.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at jondon.com. Listeners, please be sure to thank our sponsors for their financial support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their products and services. Very good. And let's go back to Dr. Martin Chapman. We first want to thank you for being on the show. And before you go, is there anything that we missed or anything that you would like to add? I think we've covered most of it, um, Joe and Cliff. Uh, it's been a pleasure to be on the show. And uh, if we can be of help uh, with uh, any um, you know, uh, IAQ questions that might arise as a result of our conversations, we'd be more than happy to do so. Now that um, you mentioned that, how do we get in touch with you? That's right. I was just going to say our website is uh, www.inbio.com. And uh, the contact information for myself and for um, other scientists and uh, business people within the company is on the contact page. Very good. Well, this is Joe Hughes saying thanks to this week's guest, Dr. Martin Chapman, also to Glenn Fellman for IE Connections What's News, and to our sponsors. And before we thank our listeners, next week we've got Cliff. Uh, We have Major Long, uh, fire restoration pioneer. Excellent. Well, I want to thank all of our uh, loyal listeners out there, our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Wow, and, of course, the wingman, Chris Boisel, at the controls, and my co-host, Cliff Slotnick. Please come back and join us next Friday at noon for the next broadcast of IAQ Radio. This has been another IAQ Radio production. 